0: Before we get started, we've got some exciting news. We are going live.
1: Woo! <laughs> I thought it was that I'm pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> what are you planning on giving birth to,
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> So this summer, there's going to be something called the Newcastle Improv Festival, which our lovely Ian McLaughlin is in charge with, along with his partner Bev. And there's going to be lots of shows from the end of July to the start of August, including the Nerdfest Pissed Up Podcast which is going to be at Alphabetti Theatre at 10.30pm on Friday the 2nd of August. Can't wait for that. So if you're in the area and fancy a bit of booze and a bit of comedy, come on down to the podcast.
2: There'll be buffs and bluffs and all your favourite podcasters.
1: So you're giving me beer and putting me in front of an audience. Yes, we are. (laughs) What could could possibly go wrong?
0: (laughs) Yeah, unedited.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, where can you get your tickets for such an event,
1: Hazel?
0: If you go to alphabettetheatre.co.uk and select Friday the 2nd of August, you'll be able to book online.
1: And while you're there, check out some of the other shows. I think all of us are at least in one of the other shows that's Mm -hmm. on during the festival as well. So get your improv fill. And
3: filth, in your case. But what if there is no tomorrow? there
1: wasn't one today...
0: Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got
2: Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, John Farthing
0: And I'm Hazel Burton On the show today we have got our film buff or film bluff quiz
3: And we'll be hearing from Ian Mayer about the lost comic book legend Vertigo
0: It is also the return of Nerd Court Where Superman 3 is going in the docks to be defended by John and prosecuted by himself Let's start the show So now it's time for film buff or film bluff. This is the part of the show where we have all got three pieces of trivia, but we've made one of those up, so we've got to try and guess which one is the bluff. Who would like to go first?
2: I have got three facts about Little Shop of Horrors. Ooh. One of which is made up. Number one. Little Shop of Horrors began as an off-Broadway play before it became a film. Number two. The final iteration of Audrey 2 required more than 50 technicians to operate it. And number three, to work against the special effects that created Audrey 2, Rick Moranis had to shoot scenes at half speed.
1: I'm going to bow out of this because I know the answer. Can I ask for a clarification Uh, on the first first one. one?
2: Yeah, I just mean a show. I don't mean like a straight acting play. Are we talking about
1: the Roger Corman Little Shop of Horrors or the Fancor's Little Shop of Horrors? I
3: mean, what I know is that it was based on the Roger Corman movie that was shot in a week on pre-existing sets. Mm -hmm. And basically that was written by Roger Corman to be used with the stuff he already had. I don't think there's anything earlier than that. And that then became the Howard Ashman musical.
1: And that musical then became the Fancor's film.
2: So you would be suggesting number one is The Bluff? Yes. Yes. So,
1: so wait, when you're saying it was a Broadway musical before it was a film
2: I'm saying there was a Broadway musical before there was a film, yes well And it began true. as the Broadway musical So
1: a film, or the, when you say <laughs> before <laughs> it was a film, which film are you talking about?
2: I am saying that chronologically there was an off-Broadway show before there was a film Before there was any film? Before there was a film
3: <laughs> How evasive can you be here? Okay, right. I think we're fairly settled on what we think the bluff is. Mm-hmm. I think you
2: probably are.
1: <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> bluff tries just,
3: to trick us, hasn't he? Just out of politeness, let's look at the other two. So one was how many people Special it took?
2: Effects. Yeah, so uh, Audrey 2 took more than 50 technicians to operate in its Thank final iteration.
3: I can believe that. Mm. Having seen the stage show, it must have taken 10 or 12 people at least. And then they were dropping things down into the audience as well to fill up the auditorium with tendrils and things mm. to make it feel the world had been taken over. So yeah, I can I can well believe that mm-hmm. for a movie. The half speed thing—that's definitely true. That's certainly possible. It's hundred percent true. And I assume <laughs> it's just to do with making the plant move really violently because it's so big and difficult to get it moving.
1: So the, by speeding the footage up, it made the plant look like it was moving at normal speed.
3: The Mean Green Mother from Outer Space wouldn't really work with it. the yeah. plant not being able to mm-hmm. move aggressively.
1: So I think. Rick Moranis pre-recorded the vocals, which they then did at half speed, and he mimed to it and moved at half speed. I'm going to have to watch it again for that. You can just tell in some shots, but only if you're really looking for it. Hazel, do you have i I've
0: got a fucking clue. (laughs) You're going to agree with those two? I'm going to trust my uh, nerd brethren and go with the first one.
2: You know your little shop of horrors. (laughs) That is correct. There was the Roger Corman film before there was a Broadway show. So there was a um, film before there was a show. And who played the dentist in the film? Not sure, but Jack Nicholson played the patient, which was mm-hmm. Bill Murray's part uh, yeah. in yeah. the musical film. The
1: main character in it was Dick Miller. Oh, yeah. He was the guy who sold the gun to the Terminator in the first Terminator. Yeah. He was the grumpy guy who's there for getting gremlins and gremlins too, which is probably what he's probably best known for, I would imagine. Uh, but he just pops up in little cameos in lots of things. He, he died at the start of the year, actually, in his 90s.
2: So, Audrey 2 actually took 55 technicians Mm -hmm. to operate it at the end. And on the half speed thing, what's interesting is Little Shop of Horrors was being filmed at Pinewood Studios at the same time as Aliens, and they were on adjacent sound stages. Hmm. And both of them required their lead to shoot scenes at half speed while acting opposite special effects. So, Rick Moranis was doing it with Audrey 2, and Sigourney Weaver was next door doing the same thing with the Alien Queen. So they used to meet up with each other when mm-hmm. they were filming, kind <laughs> of to no. talk to each other at half speed. <laughs> have a lunch um, two hours. would yeah. you
3: like to see them swap over movies? Though? That would be
2: interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Have we all seen the director's cut of Little Shop of Horrors?
2: That's the only one I have seen. Is really? The Tyneside Cinema did one of their 24-hour film marathon days. Mm-hmm. And it was a shameful gap prior to that. I'd never seen it it had mm. the don't feed the plants taking over the world ending i haven't seen the happy ending Frank Oz was forced to reshoot
1: apparently just killed the cinema stone called dead when they went into that ending
2: but presumably the show has that yeah. plants taking over ending uh, yes it yeah. does they take over the world but that works in a show yeah watching it for the first time with that ending i didn't mm-hmm. think oh they didn't live happily ever after yeah. it eats people how are you gonna <laughs> kill it
3: the only thing that surprised me about is is you've Didn't think that John and I would both know
2: about the original Little Shop of Horrors. Normally my buff or bluffs are too obscure and (laughs) I try and be too clever with them. (laughs) So I thought I'd just have a nice straightforward one. Okay. Hmm. Hazel?
0: My buff or bluffs are about X-Men. Ooh. Number one. The undisputed worst line in the original X-Men film, which is Storm's, Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else was written by Joss Whedon. Number two, James McAvoy chose to shave his head prior to filming X-Men First Class, only to discover that the character was to appear with hair in the film, making it necessary for him to wear hair extensions for the duration. And number three, Lady Gaga was slated to appear in X-Men Days of Future Past as the mutant pop star Dazzler, but the character was cut just before shooting began because she was deemed not to fit with the dark tone of the film.
2: I'm going to bow out of this one because I read an article about the X-Men series recently that listed all three of those facts. And I think I now know which one is the true one. And I don't <laughs> want to spoil it. Okay.
1: Which one isn't the true one? Which one isn't the true one, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Joss Whedon did work on the first script, didn't he? Did he do a script revite rewrite on it? But he I did. But I don't know if that's his line or not. It's, it's not
3: just whether or not he wrote for the movie, it's whether or not he wrote that particular line. It's
1: that particular line, yeah. It doesn't sound like a Joss Whedon line. It sounds like somebody trying to do a Joss Whedon line. Though, I know what you been mean. been having a bad yeah.
2: day. Not all of Joss Whedon's lines are winners. I mean, there are a few lines in The Avengers, as great as that film is, that are mm-hmm. a little bit like the, uh, the Captain America, there's only one God and he doesn't dress like that.
1: I'm going to say that's a bluff, because I've heard the Lady Gaga one.
2: The second one does
3: sound made up.
1: Yeah, isn't he bald at the end of it? Yes. So he would have had to shave his head for the end. So no, he could
3: wear a skull cap for the end.
1: Mm. I just wonder whether he did shave his head for the end and then ended up having to wear a wig because they shot it out of order. Mm. I, I'm going to go for number two being the bluff because it's a bit silly.
3: Yeah, me too. Number two is true. <sighs> yep,
0: he did shave his head thinking, mm. oh, I'm going to play Charles Xavier. He's got a bald head. Woo. But yeah, he needed his hair. So number one, it is a Joss Whedon line, but Storm delivered it straight, which is why it doesn't sound mm. as funny as it was intended to be. Right. The bluff is number three. Oh, <laughs> I was a bit cruel because Brian Singer did announce on Twitter that he had cast Lady Gaga, but it was an April Fool's joke. That's the worst thing he's ever done. What a shit. Yeah, Uh, She wasn't actually cast and cut because of the dark tone of the film. It was all an April Fool's Mm. joke. Uh,
2: Has anybody seen Dark Phoenix? Nope. (laughs) And we can
1: extend that to anybody (laughs) listening. (laughs) (laughs) Has anyone seen Dark Phoenix? What was Dazzler's power?
0: So according to Wikipedia, Dazzler is a fictional superheroine and she looks pretty much like Pamela Anderson, <laughs> looking at this image. Uh, yeah, she's wearing a gray <laughs> cat city thing and um, is, I'm going to say, top-heavy.
2: <laughs> she's a big girl. <laughs> okay. Powers?
0: She's a mutant with the ability to convert sound vibrations into light and energy sound beams. Sound into light and energy beams. <laughs> she's a flasher. <laughs> <laughs> so, she made mm. her live-action debut in Dark Phoenix. Oh, spoilers. By Halston no. Sage.
3: It's all right, no one's going to see it.
1: My film Bluff or Film Bluff is about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Everyone's favourite heroes in a half shell.
2: Yep, turtle power.
1: Did you know that the series was originally inspired by or to be a parody of Daredevil? Huh. Which is why you've got Splinter, who is similar to the trainer in the Daredevils. Oh, stick. Yeah, yeah. and they fight the foots instead of the hands. Huh. Hmm. So the idea was that that group that hit, Matt Murdock, went to the side of the road and hit some turtles.
2: Yeah, they even kind of wear blindfolds.
1: Exactly, yeah. But Mm. from that joke, it became a cultural behemoth. Here are three facts about the turtles, two of which are true, one of which is made up. Number one, long before Hamilton, (coughs) there was a better musical. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Coming Out of Their Shell. (laughs) A musical theatre piece in which the Ninja Turtles decide that music is better than ninja soup when it comes to spreading peace and love around the world. Highlights include Shredder doing a rap about how much he hates music and Master Splinter delivering a power ballad in the style of Michael Bolton. (laughs) Sounds awful. Number two. In Austria, the character of Michelangelo was renamed Botticelli. This is because in a horrible coincidence, two months before the series premiered, a serial killer called Michael Dangolo was caught who had murdered four people and put their bodies in
0: sewers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think I know which one I suspect.
0: Michael Danglio. Michael Dangolo.
1: Number three. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secrets of the Ooze, had a battle with the BBFC over sausages. In a scene in a shopping mall, one of the turtles gets a thing of sausages and spins them round like nunchucks. The BBFC originally thought these were nunchucks and asked for the film to be cut. When the directors proved that they were sausages and not nunchucks, James Furman, the director of the BBFC, said, well, it looks like a weapon to any streetwise (laughs) eight-year-old.
2: They had trouble with censorship in the UK, didn't they? Because they became the Teenage Mutant Hero Hero Turtles turtles. over here.
3: They were hugely sensitive about shuriken throwing stars and 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 nunchucks. But I find it hard to believe that sausages would be convincing nunchucks.
1: For a long time, even like Bruce Lee films were cut. What do you mean even some, Bruce Lee films? Uh, any, so he, it's like an 18 rated Bruce Lee film, mm. they would cut nunchucks out. And
3: that was because of the likelihood of someone actually seriously hurting themselves just trying to mess about with a nunchuck.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Number two, if it, yes. it's not true it means that John has done a little bit of research into picking a suitable alternative Renaissance artist. Obviously not much Because, <laughs> you know, Botticelli, contemporary, more or less, with Michelangelo, mm-hmm. same sort of level of fame as the other three. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad bit of bluffing. There's some thought gone into that if that's not true. I know that number one is true because yeah. I have read about that musical. It was released on VHS, I think. It does exist. Yep. Okay.
0: Yeah, I know that's true as well.
2: It's the sausages, or it's it's the serial killer, Michael
1: Dangelo the seri- yeah, serial yeah. They serial
2: both sound like Johnisms. Mm.
0: Definitely a hundred percent going for the serial killer.
2: Yeah, I think that's probably just
3: to give a counterpoint. I'm going to go for the sausages.
1: Well,
0: if you two thought that the BBC
1: would have an argument over sausages versus nunchucks, then We'd you would be correct. right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number two is the bluff. Michael Dangelo is, as far as I know, not on the your- <laughs> Why? Serial killer. Why who, Austria? I just sounded. It, just, <laughs> it was a country that the name could have come from there, but and he did not bury bodies in sewers just before the. I, I was with you was that, until you yeah. said sewers, and I'm like. Yeah. Okay. For mine, there are three
3: unrelated facts. In South Korea, it's possible for a baby to turn two the day after they are born. The second one is... In film,
0: buff, or bluff
1: bluff? <laughs> 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 Films are made in
2: South Korea. Yeah. Okay.
1: There was the guy who got... The, um, the next two are. The guy who got kidnapped, wasn't there, was forced to... Is it North Korea is the bad one, isn't it? Yes.
3: bad one. There
1: was a filmmaker who was kidnapped and taken to North Korea and forced to make a communist Godzilla film.
3: He had to teach them how to make blockbusters was basically mm. the idea, wasn't mm-hmm. it? So for the second fact, in Japan, spaghetti westerns are known as macaroni westerns. And for the third one, Former Bond, Sean Connery, cameoed as Inspector Cluso in a movie. You can ask for more details.
2: Now, the non-film one, would that be included deliberately to be a bluff because it's not film related? Or are you just overthinking it? Or am I just overthinking it?
1: It is true because of the way that Korean calendars work. And they are trying to change it because basically if you're in Korea, you end up with two ages. You are born... And then three months after you were born, you have your first birthday.
3: Well, if that was true, then the fact wouldn't be true. Because uh, this was that it's possible to turn two the day after they're born.
1: Oh, maybe you're born at one. But certainly then on the New Year's Eve, you go up a year as well. So there is a way that you can become two after a day. If you happen to be born on the 30th of December. 31st. 31st. <laughs> yeah okay if you happen to be born on the 31st of december then you are one and then you become two when it hits new year's eve and it causes loads of problems with ages and when people go to school and stuff like that so unless you're bluffing just on the specifics of how it works that's Hmm. a real thing because it was in the guardian the other week
0: macaroni instead of spaghetti something that's telling me that's true yeah
2: i feel like that's Hmm. true as well yeah, maybe they don't eat spaghetti in Japan.
3: And the third fact was that former Bond Sean Connery cameoed as Inspector Clouseau in a movie. Do you want which, to ask for more I would about like that? to know which movie. It is The Curse of the Pink Panther, which is not the first, but the second sequel that was made after Sellers' death.
2: Oh. Was this like an Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus sort of thing with lots and lots of Clouseaus or actors playing him?
1: They did a lot where there was just stock footage that they'd used from previous films. That was, I think it's called On the Trail of the Pink Panther?
3: Yeah. And they had Joanna Lumley interviewing people who had done scenes at various times of Sellers' career trying to tie the whole thing together Mm -hmm. and then they used unused sequences from earlier films to basically make another Mm -hmm. movie with Sellers in it. How did that work? Not well.
2: Doesn't bode well for The Rise of Skywalker.
3: But yet they made another one after it. And this had someone called Ted Wass, who had played a character who was trying to track down Clouseau.
1: And then there was Son of the Pink Panther with Roberto Benigni. Yeah. And then the reboot with, with, Steve, with Martin. Steve Martin. <sighs> I think I'd know that if it was true. It seems like the sort of fact that I would know. What sort of time period?
0: Early 80s. Probably
3: two years after Sellers' death, whenever okay. that was.
1: Yeah. Sort of early 80s. Yeah. I'm going to go for that being the bluff.
0: Yeah, me too.
3: I'm going for South Korea. Okay. South Korea, John is actually very accurate (laughs) eventually. Yes, it's quite possible you are born at one and go up a year on the first of the next year. So if you're born on New Year's Eve, you can be two the day after. Uh, In Japan, spaghetti westerns are known as macaroni Mm -hmm. westerns. And though Sean Connery didn't play Clouseau, Roger Moore did Mm -hmm. in that particular movie, which I thought was a very weird thing for him to play.
1: Just a very small cameo, isn't it? Is it like a little in joke almost?
3: I don't know, I haven't seen it, and don't intend to.
1: <laughs> it's a terrible series, the Pink Panther films. Actually, the first one's not called the Pink Panther, is it? It's like Shot in the Dark or something? I think, yeah, oh, no, it, I think that's Pink... the second one, isn't it? Is it the second one that doesn't have Peter Sellers in as well? It has a different no, clue. No, I'm pretty
2: so? sure Peter Sellers is in Shot in the Dark, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty mm. sure he yeah. is. So
1: there's one of the early ones, it's a different actor, and then he came back to it. It's like the Tupac or the Biggie Smalls of Vap, He's a two-pack of cinema, in that there were so many Pink Panther films after he died, putting together little bits of footage of him and trying to make another film. Yeah,
2: I wondered where that two-pack analogy yeah. was going. <laughs> yeah. Bruce Lee as well. There's so many Bruce
1: Lee films where it's one shot of Bruce Lee at the beginning, or somebody in a Bruce Lee mask. Yeah,
2: I mean, funnily enough, we've been doing the same thing with John's audio footage for the past seventeen episodes. Mm. Really? He hasn't said anything original since. No.
1: <laughs> Black Panther will be a flop <laughs>
2: <laughs> who would win in a fight the pink panther or the black panther mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> not a fair fight either it's of black exploitation apparently the new shaft is terrible yeah. Yeah. but it's got all the shafts so richard roundtree is in it samuel l jackson and a new guy has shaft the third generation mm-hmm. and the joke is that young shaft is a mild-mannered fbi data analyst unlike
2: the other two unlike mm. the other hilarious two. um I heard the other day that Quentin Tarantino intended Django Unchained to be a Shaft prequel, which is why <laughs> Django's wife's name is Von Shaft or something like that. Mm. Ah. So she's the ancestor of Shaft, apparently. Shaft. Yep.
1: That's damn right.
2: That's your Isaac Hayes impression then. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I think I won that.
2: Yeah, probably. Well done. <laughs> you get to win Superman four.
0: I got all three of mine right.
1: You got all three of your own right.
0: No, all of yours. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent puffin'
4: or bluffing. I think I can hear something coming in from the void. Greetings from the void. It's Ian Mayer still stuck here, but it's cool and purple and a bit weird. My fellow geeks, let us pause and raise a glass or three to mark the end of an era. You may not know it. You may not even notice it, but geekery is about to change. DC Comics have announced that as of next year, their Vertigo Comics imprint is cancelled, with any remaining titles being rolled into DC's Black Label brand. So, what's Vertigo Comics and why should you care? Well, if you read comics, then you already know what Vertigo is. They're the publisher of some of the most iconic titles in the last 26 years. Non-superhero stuff, crime comics like 100 Bullets or Scalped or big action adventures like The Losers or strange, unique sci-fi like Transmetropolitan or Why the Last Man and lots of horror from American Vampire through to Swamp Thing, and even comics which are uncategorizable, like Grant Morrison's contemporary magic epic The Invisibles. But if you're not into comics, what is an imprint? An imprint's kind of like a sub-brand, so if you're a publisher and you want to make a bunch of horror comics, you might put them under a particular banner, so readers always know they're going to get a horror comic. But imprints also act like kind of mini-publishers within a publisher. With their own editorial controls, standards and ways of doing business, this is very important for Vertigo. There's been tons of imprints. One of my favourites was uh, Milestone Comics, which again was part of DC. It was founded by a group of African-American creators and it, it ruled. They made their own superhero continuity away from DC's core books. Now, if anyone from Netflix or another premium streaming commissioner is listening, Google Blood Syndicate and make a TV show of it. You'll have something between the X-Men and The Wire on your hands and it will rule the world. But back to Vertigo, in November 1993, one of DC Comics' senior editors, Karen Berger, set up the imprint with a very particular sensibility. It was for mature readers, but that was the time, late 80s, early 90s, when comics were being seen as a more mature art form, and you had lots of press saying comics aren't just for kids anymore. And riding this wave, Vertigo was formed. But far from just being for mature readers, it was conceived with a very literate, novelistic sensibility. Karen Berger had been at DC quite a while, but before that she was a literature graduate and she didn't read comics growing up. So she didn't come to the field with a preconceived notion of what this should be. As she put it, she wanted to edit books she wanted to read. And this really showed she had an eye for writing talent and sought it out. Karen Berger is responsible for bringing and entrenching a whole wave of UK talent into US comics. She was already Alan Moore's editor on Swamp Thing. Before she did DC, Alan Moore, the greatest living comic book writer, and she'd been Neil Gaiman's editor on Sandman before she actively sought out other UK writers. If you check out the guest list for the second ever UK comic art convention in 1986, she's there along with names like Grant Morrison, Mark Miller, Garth Ennis, British writers who'd come to have a real impact in the US comic scene. Part of the reason she was able to attract and keep largely writing talent at Vertigo was that Vertigo Comics gave a better deal to creators, which was quite revolutionary at the time. So writers, not only is getting sort of more money out of the deal, felt far more investment and were encouraged to experiment with longer and more interesting forms. Vertigo Books were also the first mainstream publisher to write comics to expressly be collected, to be printed in trade paperback or or graphic novel, which meant that these being published in bookshops, their success would feed back into the success of the single issue. It also meant we got much longer and sort of more literate comics writing. It's not a stretch to say that Vertigo kind of ushered in the real prominence of the writer in comics. So after 26 years and after publishing some of the most iconic books in the field, we're no longer going to see a Vertigo comic again. The industry reacted on social media, everyone singing its praises, and especially Karen Berger's, and Karen herself chipped in on Twitter. She said, corporate thinking and creative risk-taking don't mix. DC nixing Vertigo was a long time coming, but hey... We changed the game and we had a blast doing it. You did, Karen, and we raise a glass to you. Bye-bye, Vertigo.
2: All rise for Nerd Court is now in session. On the stand today, Superman 3, which may or may not have a subtitle. No. No, it does not. (laughs) For the prosecution, Counsel Hazel Burton. For the defence, Counsel John Farthing. Expert witness, Peter Johnson. Prosecution, begin your opening statement.
0: Your honour and gentlemen of the jury, I'm here today to argue that Superman 3 is a complete failure of a film, which had a lot of rich resources to work with and seemingly chose not to use any of them. The potential in the cast, the strength of the story from the previous film, and the tantalising notion of an evil Superman are all thrown aside in favour of embarrassingly ineffective slapstick-style humour. This attempted comedy film misses all the marks, produces zero laughs, and refuses to even try what it could have been. For these reasons, Superman 3 deserves to rot in nerd jail.
2: Defence, your opening statement.
1: I am not going to stand here and say that Superman 3 is an objectively great movie in the way that the first half of the first Superman movie is. What I am going to say is that Superman 3 is a film that brought a lot of people a lot of joy in the 1980s. It was a film that lost some of the pretentiousness, perhaps, of the first couple of films. And it's just a good, fun story. get to see Chris R. Reeve's been amazing in multiple roles. It is just one of the fun films of your childhood. Can you imagine, Your Honour, on a Sunday afternoon, you have had your roast dinner... You put the TV on, you're a little bit sleepy, you've got your family around you, you're flicking through the channels, you come across Superman 3. Are you not reasonably content with your choice?
2: I can imagine such a scenario. Prosecution, your arguments please.
0: Can I first make an objection?
2: Well, you you'd normally have to say that after the thing you object to.
0: Can I make one now? I'll I didn't allow want, it. I didn't want to interrupt... But the opposing counsel said that the film brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. Are those people with us in the courtroom today?
1: One of them is, and I would hope that by the end, four of us are.
0: <laughs> Conjecture and should be stricken from the record. Your Overruled. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my first piece of evidence, Your Honour. Evil Superman is a massive missed opportunity. Christopher Reeve was an extremely gifted actor. I would argue the best ever to don the red y front And when he first played Superman, it was the first 70mm big screen realistic depiction of a comic book character. Up until then, those parts were mainly played by athletes and tended to have a B-movie feel about them. He brought gravitas, emotion and an inherent likability that laid the path for established actors to play superheroes as well as other roles, such as Michael Keaton. Up until Superman 3, we'd seen Reeve play...
1: Objection. It seems to be suggested in the grammar of that sentence that he laid the role for good actors to play superheroes and Michael Keaton. Could you, give no. me a, could you give me an example of a good actor playing Michael Keaton in a film?
0: No, I said he laid the groundwork for established actors to play superheroes and other roles. Michael Keaton is an example of that.
2: Defence, I would advise you to listen to the <laughs> opposing Council.
0: As I was saying. Up until Superman 3, we'd seen Reeve play the struggling hero, the good-natured celebrity, the charming klutz, and in Superman 2, the best of the series, the regretful and conflicted man behind the cape, anguishing between wanting to be with the woman that he loves and saving the planet that he's grown to care about. We've never seen him as a hateful character, someone who'd had enough of fame and responsibility and wanted to destroy. This was Superman 3's immense opportunity to do something different with the character, when he gets handed a poisoned mound of kryptonite by Richard Pryor's character. It wasn't Superman's choice to become evil. If it was, we'd have struggled to believe it. So, time for DC to really push the boat out, shock the audience, and allow Reeve to really show his acting chops. So what did they do? Well, let the mild inconveniences commence. (laughs) He straightens the Leaning Tower of Pisa so that the souvenir sellers had to reconfigure their main offering. He then casually blows out the Olympic torch, In what should have been a massive moment in the entire superhero franchise, we don't get any sense of fear or reactions from the people of Earth who had become accustomed to Superman saving the day. All we get is a sense that Superman had become a bit of a dick. And speaking of dicks, we also learn that Superman has sex during his evil period, which almost makes the entire plot of Superman 2 redundant as he has to give up his superpowers in order to get between the covers with Lois Lane. Now, most of the evil things that Superman does have absolutely no bearing on the plot of the film. The only one that does is when he rips apart an oil tanker. In the universe of evil TV series, evil Superman is extremely ruthless and manipulative. and He likes to spread chaos and ruin other people's lives. Where was manipulation in Superman 3? Where was the pretending to be his good counterpart in order to really twist the knife? The culmination of the evil Superman plot device in Seedman 3 is a fight scene in the junkyard between him and Clark Kent, who appears because his soul has been split into two. I will concede that this is genuinely a good scene, with an impressive conclusion. Thank you. <laughs> we see Clark Kent strangle his evil counterpart, thereby proving that the character of Clark is no bumbling idiot, but has his own sense of purpose and fight which would have meant so much more if he was truly fighting an evil version of himself and not a dick who likes to straighten things. (laughs) Once this plot device is concluded, we go right back to the slapstick idiocy of the rest of the film. This should have been the presiding element of Superman 3, but it's over in an instant. He has a shave, he allows his costume to go back to red from a slightly darker red, and settles back into his bit-part role in a Richard Lester comedy starring Richard Pryor.
2: Defence your rebuttal.
1: Just because the film is not what you want it to be, does not make it a bad film. It's right; so it's essentially a comedy, and the things that bad Superman does are funny. The fact that it's implied he's sleeping with prostitutes, it's so these flicking peanuts to smash windows. The fact that it's a, a slightly crap buddy <laughs> is in keeping with the tone of the rest of the film, like Light,
0: slightly crap. No
2: <laughs> <laughs> prosecution. It's a warning.
0: Sorry. <laughs>
1: What he does works very well and is very funny. And it is the masterclass of acting by Christopher Reeve. You buy that this is a different character. He physically he holds himself differently to how he does as other Superman. His posture changes, his voice changes slightly, his entire attitude changes. It's a great piece of acting. And the conclusion of that plot, the Superman versus Clark Kent fight, is probably my favourite moment in any of the Superman films.
2: Thank you, Defence. We'll continue with the prosecution.
0: So my second piece of evidence is the comedy that misses all the marks. So I mentioned earlier...
1: Objection. The word comedy was said in an overtly sarcastic <laughs> manner. <laughs> okay,
0: allow me to put quotation Sustained. marks around it.
2: Sustained prosecution's second warning.
0: <laughs> I mentioned earlier that this was a Richard Lester comedy film starring Richard Pryor. And that's exactly what it was. Comedy in a superhero film is not a bad thing. It's why Thor Ragnarok is my favourite and why Man Vs. Steel is my least favourite. It really needed a knock-knock joke in there at the very least. But the comedy has to be... funny. <laughs> Let's take the opening sequence. This was Richard Lester's way of saying that this movie isn't like the other Superman movies. The comedy and it's not going to take itself very seriously. What's more funny then than a blind man's dog who runs away, the dog knocks over a lady and the blind man mistakes a street-lane painter as his dog and starts following it. Because blind people are idiots, obviously. The slapstick nature of the opening sequence is not only not funny, it's offensive, and it pisses all over the dramatic and tense ending of Superman 2. It's also unfortunate that the effort put towards making a joke doesn't always serve the story. For example, there's a scene where Pryor's character, Gus Gorman, is trying to access a weather satellite. In the process, he messes with a number of other systems, which creates multiple problems. In one instance, we see a man sitting down to breakfast with his wife, His wife is looking at pictures of cruisers, which implies that she likes to spend money on lavish things. Her husband is opening some bills and sees one for $176,000. He takes a sliced grapefruit and shoves it into his wife's face, then casually goes back to his breakfast. Domestic violence. Comedy gold. There's another sequence where the traffic lights go awry, causing pedestrians to cross both sides of the road at the same time. The green figure from the traffic light sign then climbs up to the figure and they start fighting. It's all supposed to be a joke, but A, it's not funny, and B, all of these scenes are unnecessary. I don't mind something not always moving the plot along.
3: Objection. <laughs> uh, <laughs> witness, yeah, you have an objection? <laughs> yeah, the defending counsel is busy stuffing his face with magic stars and undermining the prosecution's oh, was
1: case. was Your Honour? <laughs> I apologise.
2: Watch it. Prosecution, you may continue.
0: Unfortunately, Superman 3 doesn't incorporate its comedy to tell the story. In almost every case, it's supplementary, unnecessary, and often creates scenes or situations that don't make sense. When the comedy does become part of the plot, it becomes a ludicrous distraction. For example, Gorman's supercomputer analyses Superman and draws him as the original comic book image. The screen then displays the animated action, which is a barrage of rockets that the villain in the movie aims at Superman, while keeping score and tallying the number of rockets remaining. Effectively then, Superman beats Webster in a game of Space Invaders. Secondly, hacking into a weather satellite will allow them to control the weather, and will then allow them control the (laughs) Columbia (laughs) coffee industry, apparently. But this weather machine also controls ATM machines, the postal industry. The entire system has one guard. Makes no sense. Now, I'm going to come to the crux of it here. Frustratingly, in his autobiography titled Prior Convictions and Other Life Sentences, Richard Pryor admitted that he didn't like the script of Superman 3 and he only did the film for the money. That's why he gives such a half-hearted performance. I'll leave it to Christopher Reeve himself to have the last word on this piece of evidence. After the release of the film, he said, Richard Lester was always looking for a gag, to the point where the gags involving Richard Pryor went way over the top. I didn't think that his going off the top of a building on skis with a pink tablecloth around his shoulders was funny at all. To have your main star critique the main tone of the film pretty much sums up how misjudged this so-called comedy film was.
2: Defence, have you finished (laughs) your magic stars? Yes. Your rebuttal?
1: Where to begin? I am going to, Your Honour, concede that the opening sequence of Superman 3 is one of the least funny pieces of comedy put on screen. I cannot, with a straight face, and I watched it with a straight face, <laughs> <laughs> say otherwise. There's an interesting thing about the Superman 3 opening sequencer. When he goes into the photo booth and turns into Superman, there's a the little kid trying to get the photos, and he takes the photos of him and tears them up. That little kid is the person that played baby Superman in the very first film. That shows, I think, that the film was made with some care. Some love for the history of the franchise.
2: Your argument is about the comedy defence, not the history of the franchise. Keep it on topic.
1: It's almost like how True will (laughs) justify this, isn't it?
2: Um, (laughs) Try.
1: I, I was interested that you had a problem with the unrealistic nature of some of the things that happen in the film.
0: Do not bring up Armageddon. I'm not going to think about it. All I'm going to say
1: is that this is a franchise in which the previous film concluded with Superman making time go backwards by spinning around the earth very, very fast.
0: Yeah, but he had a reason for doing that, whereas in this film, there's no reasons for any of the comedy.
1: I don't think having issues with the realism in a comic book film about a man from outer space who wears his pants on the outside is a, a line of argument that a sensible counsel should be going down. That
0: wasn't my line of argument. My line of argument was that the film is not funny. Not that it's not realistic, it's, not, it's just not funny. Yeah, it's not funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very good, thank, thank you. <laughs> uh,
2: prosecution, your third and final piece of evidence.
0: My third evidence is about the badly written roles for Margot Kidder and Robert Vaughn. For the third film the producers claimed that they didn't want to have to come up with a way for lex luther to break out of prison again. Bullshit. Gene Hackman obviously took one look at the script saw how ridiculous it was and refused to be any sort of part of it. Enter Robert Vaughn who plays megalomaniac businessman Rops Webster who is about as intimidating as a hug. None of this is Vaughn's fault as he was working with a script that only had the stardom of Richard Pryor as its motivation. An Academy Award-nominated actor who brought the suave spy Napoleon Solo to life in the 1960s series The Man From U.N.C.L.E., and was the first popular American actor to come out in uh, public against the Vietnam Vietnam War. Wow, what is wow. it good for? <laughs> Deserved better. That's nothing, however, in comparison to how Margot Kidder was treated. The chemistry between Kidder and Reeve is what made the first two films so enjoyable to watch. Lois Lane is the reason Clark had to turn back time in Superman 1 and get rid of his powers in Superman 2, and you can absolutely see why. She's strong-willed, intelligent, witty. She has a bit of a, a likeable vulnerability about her as well. In Superman 3, her character has roughly five minutes of screen time, and it's only to announce to the audience that she's going on holiday and won't be around for the next two hours. The love interest in this film is with Lana Lang, Clark's high school crush. The introduction of Lana isn't necessarily a bad thing, as it's a potential love triangle. But no, because that will get in the way, obviously, of all the abhorrent slapstick. The relationship between Lana and Clark never gets close to the relationship of Lois and Clark. Take, for example, the scene at the high school reunion where Clark asks her to dance. The camera is distant, and it's almost as if we're peering at them from afar, rather than getting to see any sort of closeness develop. And then the scene abruptly ends, almost as if there's more to it, and we just don't get to see it. That's how their relationship is throughout the movie. We get a hint of something special, and then it's off to the next gag. We're sorely missing Margot Kidder here. Whether her reduced screen time was down to her speaking out about the way Richard Donner was treated during Superman 2, I'm not sure. What I am sure about is that both she and Robert Vaughan deserved much more than becoming sidelines to a Richard Pryor-intended star vehicle.
1: Defence? There are off-screen reasons... Why Gene Hackman doesn't appear at all and Margot Kiddo has a limited presence in between doing lines of coke in a trailer. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: she's dead, so it doesn't matter. Is that what you're about to say? It's irrelevant. The dead
1: can't libel. <laughs> I didn't like Gene Hackman in the Superman films. One of my bugbears with the first two films is how Lex Luthor is treated as a joke rather than the genius that he is in the comic books and uh, his sidekick. Ned Beatty, that, in the first two films? And Pamela Connolly-Stevenson, the first one. Pamela uh, Stevenson. She was in the third one.
0: one. She in the third one? Mm. Yeah.
2: Expert witness, can you clarify?
3: Yes, Pamela Stevenson was in the third one.
0: The one that you're currently trying to yeah. defend. So so you was the, who, 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 to. who was
3: great attention to.
1: There was there an annoying woman in the first one as well.
0: Can I just say, this is not about Gene Hackman, it's about Robert Vaughan.
1: I think that Robert Vaughan, in the third film, is a stronger character than Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor. Um, <laughs> And, you know, Lex Luthor again would have been a retread.
0: So why did they cast effectively the same as Lex Luthor, but just a bit (laughs) shitter?
1: I really like the romance in Superman 3. I think Annette O'Toole is a brilliant actress. She played the mum, didn't she, in Smallville Mm -hmm. many years later. And I think that's quite a nice, sweet-touching romance. You get to see Clark go back and be himself, unencumbered by all the various roles in Metropolis, where he is always acting a part, whether that part is Superman or nerdy Clark. Possibly it's the only time you get to see the real person, maybe. Although it is a shame to have to sideline Lois Lane for that to happen, I think the ends justify the means. And I also think that the romance between Lois and Clark was pretty much played out over the narrative of the first Two films.
2: Thank you, defence. Now your closing arguments. Jury, do you have anything to add while the prosecution finds their closing argument?
3: (laughs) It actually amazes me that the defence hasn't used the best argument for the
1: movie. Is it that it's not Superman for the question?
0: (laughs) (laughs) My closing statement, Your Honor. Superman 3 is a film that makes no effort to learn from, respect or even recognise its vastly superior predecessor. The filmmakers intentionally aim to create something that could be no more substantial than a light, fluffy comedy flick, and they couldn't even do that right. The entire effort smacks of complacency. To his credit, Christopher Reeve does his best to create something worthwhile during the short, throwaway midsection in which Superman turns bad but the filmmakers fail to capitalise on this great idea and stellar performance, rendering it an ultimately meaningless distraction from a parade of weak, forced, slapstick jokes. The other talented cast members are forced to work with either total rubbish or next to nothing at all. The film is goofy, lame, bumbling and painfully unfunny. It chooses to shut down its only potential redeeming features and is left as an over two-hour slog bereft of any enjoyment. This is why Superman 3 deserves a place in nerd jail.
1: Yona. Yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> what I would say is that I think you are judging the film as against a different film that you wanted. But what they chose to make was a light-hearted, fun palate cleanser of a film almost. Around the same time, I think you had Star Trek 4. The idea of going lighter with these films that you can have a bit of fun with them rather than taking it all too seriously. not a great film, but it's an enjoyable couple of hours. The opening sequence misfires. It's not Richard Pryor at his best, but if you were a kid in the 80s, you fucking loved Richard Pryor. And to see Richard Pryor with Superman telling jokes and having fun, for, you know, for a seven or eight year old, that was heaven.
3: Having seen Richard Pryor's material at the time.
1: Uh, when you're a kid... You saw the films at one on ITV on a Saturday afternoon with everything cut out of them. And then when you're an adult, you go back and you go, oh, okay. And then you listen to the, uh, the stand-up and you go, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Bad Superman is a concept that, again, could have been played different ways, but I like the way that they played it. At the end, uh, you've got a giant computer and a lady being turned into a robot. That scared the shit out of me as a kid. Basically, I'm saying this film gave me a lot of fun as a child. Would you want to, Your Honour... Sully my childhood memories by putting them in jail in the way that's so many of my childhood memories <laughs> already have been. If Superman 4 is a bad Superman film...
3: If.
2: <laughs>
0: much
1: Superman 4 is an example of what a bad Superman film can be. Compared to Superman 4, Superman 3 is Superman 2.
0: I would have prosecuted against Superman 4, but no one's prepared to defend it.
1: <laughs> it doubles Milton Keynes for New York. <laughs> There's eight Superman films, I think. Yeah? Yes. I would put it in the top half of Superman films. There's five worst Superman films. Eden. you done? I would very much like you to set Superman free. Free. <laughs> in order to entertain another generation of undiscerning children.
2: <laughs> very good. Thank you. Gentlemen of the jury, do you have anything to add before I render my final judgment?
1: Yeah, this isn't how courts work, (laughs) don't (laughs) we?
3: When it first came out, when I first saw it, I I did enjoy it and I probably watched it once or twice. In the edited version, probably. And at the time, maybe I enjoyed the humour and certainly I enjoyed Pamela Anderson. Uh, Not Pamela Anderson, (laughs) Pamela Pamela, Pamela (laughs) Stevenson, (laughs) who uh, certainly impressed me at an impressionable age. But it's it's not a good film. It's not really funny now, and it really dates really terribly. All the arguments raised by the prosecution, I think, are correct. And yes, it should be sent to a
2: Jail. Whoop! Thank you very much, jury. Counsel for the prosecution, counsel for the defence, you have both made some very convincing arguments. Prosecution, it is clear that you find Superman Three distasteful and its humour to be uniformly terrible. Why he didn't just push over the leaning Tower of Pisa instead of standing it up straight, (laughs) I cannot begin to fathom. (laughs) Counsel for the defense, you made some very convincing arguments for childhood nostalgia, and you are correct that Superman 3 is not the worst Superman film. He does in fact become a mass murderer in Man of Steel. However, (gasps) I have not forgotten that 18 months ago you (laughs) sent Lost to Nerd Jail. (gasps) My overriding (gasps) bias (gasps) remains and Superman 3 is sentenced to a little silvery envelope thing to be cast off into the skies until it lands in nerd jail.
1: Your Honour, before you've your final verdict... I just did it. (laughs) Could I show you this picture of yourself (laughs) with a puppy?
0: (laughs) With what?
1: (laughs) No. (laughs)
2: Sorry, Superman 3. Phantom Zone it is.
0: Um, May I ask what the punishment is for the defence, for even trying to defend it?
2: I'm um, watching Superman 4. No.
1: <laughs> me to the Phantom Zone.
2: <laughs> Kneel before Hazel. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't sound dirty when Zod said it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that brings us to the end of another Nerdfest episode. Thank you very much indeed for listening. We will be back with more Tomfoolery in two weeks. In the meantime, check us out on social media. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. Peter is probably going to add something very amusing at the end of this episode, so keep listening until the very end. But in the meantime, you've been listening to...
2: A fair and objective judge.
3: Someone who's still two, if he's in South Korea. (coughs) Notorious Austrian sex
1: pervert Raphael.
0: And two-time nerd court champion, Hazel Burton. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.
2: I heard the other day that Quentin Tarantino intended Jungle and Chain to be a shaft prequel.
0: That's done right was the first popular American actor to come out in public against the Vietnam war Vietnam war what? what is it good for